Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 24, verses 50 through 53, and from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. We take a moment to find those places, and if you're able, I'd ask that you'd stand for the reading of the word. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many by his sufferings, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he, took, and when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who has taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. I've seen that video about six times, and Josiah gets me every time at the end. Those are our children. Uh, that's not a Shutterfly stock video. Those are our children who have been entrusted to us, so we love those faces. And they're beautiful faces because we know them. And yeah, it's really good stuff. Um, we don't know how early on, but very early in a child's life, they begin to form their way of viewing the whole world interpreting life. We call it a worldview, uh, a perspective on life, and they are from a very early stage, some might even argue while they're still in their mom's tummies, forming a worldview, a way of interpreting the world that God the Father Almighty has made. And that's why I think the creed is so important for the Christian home. The creed builds into our hearts and minds this implicit way of seeing and viewing the world that God has made. And I think it's one of the best ways to form a cohesive worldview, a distinctly Christian view uh, that's centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're studying the creed together as a church. If you're visiting us today, we are walking through the Apostles' Creed and we, we are not preaching the creed. We've got a, a little handout with the creed on it. But we are, we're not preaching the creed, but we're preaching the gospel by laying out the elements of the creed, um, the biblical teaching of the creed. 
And we're doing this because as parents and as grandparents, and I would like to talk to parents and grands for just a second, as parents and grandparents, the earlier our children see the basic truths of the creed coming alive in my life, in your life, um, the earlier they see the doctrinal components of the creed changing the way you talk at home and at work, the skeletal structure of Christianity, I believe, I believe, I believe, fleshed out in my marriage or in my friendships, the promises of the creed actually resourcing me to forgive those who've offended me or wronged me, even maybe even genuinely, deeply wronged me. The sooner they see the creed coming alive in grace and mercy in your life, the earlier our children connect truth with gospel change, the less likely, this is kind of my thesis this morning, the less likely they'll be seduced by the competing voices of the world. And those voices are many. The dominant cultural narratives that are discipling us and molding us and training us and shaping us. Like the world is full of isms that want to form you and shape you into their way of thinking. And so, you know, the competing isms that are out there, and I've mentioned them here and there along the way, but in election season, it's probably worth asking, is is Bernie's democratic socialism a legitimate worldview? Is it a legitimate way of life? It's worth asking that. Is radical feminism, I saw an advertisement recently down at a coffee shop for a, a radical feminism gathering, using that language, this, these, are their, these are their words. Is radical feminism the best way to correct the abuses of male chauvinism throughout history? That's worth asking. Is, is radical feminism the way to compete the abuses of male dominance and authority? Abuses which are very real and should fill men with shame. So as you're thinking about the world that our children are growing up in, what are the things that trouble you most as parents and grandparents? Is it racism and social injustice? Is it the sustainability of the earth? Is it gender identity and the future of marriage and family life? What's marriage and family life going to be like 50 years from now, 100 years from now? Economic issues, materialism, unbridled capitalism. What's it going to be like to live? How are, how are your children, how are, grand, how are your, I don't have any grandchildren. I almost said our grandchildren. I don't have any grandchildren. Okay, all right. So how are your children and grandchildren going to compete in the marketplace of ideas if they don't have a cohesive worldview? One that's convincing. One that feeds their deepest affections and your own deepest affections. So when I confess, I believe. When you confess, I believe, you are at the same time denying all of the other competing narratives. The things that are trying to own us and shape us and disciple us. Last Sunday, we affirmed the authority of Jesus over all rival kingdoms through his resurrection. Over sin, over evil, over hell, over death, Jesus triumphed. And he took the keys with him on his way out.
He is Lord. We talked about the resurrection last week. Today, the creed reminds us about what happens next. We take it up a notch. Literally, we take it up. He ascended into heaven. He ascended and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So I want to help, I, I want us to think about the ascension of Jesus today. I think it's one of the most underrated moments in the gospel story. The Bible mentions it in several places. Uh, you'll see it in Luke's gospel, we just read that. It's in Mark's gospel very briefly. John uh, refers, Jesus speaks of it in John's gospel, right? He says, I'm going back to the Father, I will ascend to the Father, I will go back to the Father. So he promises that, but nobody really details it like Luke does in Acts chapter one. So we've read Acts chapter one, verses one through 11, and I wanna draw out three, uh, three points for you about the ascension that I think will really help strength, I hope, they will help strengthen your faith. Number one, ascension is part of the larger gospel story. Ascension is part of the larger gospel story. Join me in verse one of the book of Acts. Very first verse. Think with me about the, the, the ascension being um, this moment in a larger gospel story. Luke says, we, Luke is the author of the book of Acts. Luke says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Taken up is the ascension. In the first book, so in the first book, Luke says, I wrote about the life and ministry and death and suffering and even up to the resurrection of Jesus. That was part one. I've got a second book. It's called the book of Acts. And I'm going to include, like, this is, this is part two of the story. And it starts with the ascension of Jesus. The ascension, it's not just the resurrection. The apostles don't want to stop with the resurrection. The resurrection is a big deal. It's a huge deal. In fact, the resurrection and ascension paired together, I think, are, are like the culmination of the Christ event, saying the success of the gospel is real. So, but Luke doesn't want to stop with the resurrection. He wants, to, he wants you to see the ascension is paired with the resurrection. He wants you to see that for 40 days, the gospel success is being promoted. And in this great moment of ascension, Jesus will ascend and be seated at the right hand of God and, and make a statement about the success of the gospel. The ascension of Jesus, one writer has said, begins the book of Acts because the ascension is both a boundary and a transition. It's a boundary, it's a hard boundary because from this moment on, Jesus will no longer walk and live among the disciples on the earth. They will not see him again in person until he comes to judge the living and the dead. We're talking about that next week. This is a hard boundary. Jesus is leaving his earthly existence. But it's also a transition. It's a transition because Jesus will send the Spirit and he's gonna start this thing called the church. And we're gonna come back to that in just a second. How do you know that the offering, how would one know that the offering of the Lamb of God, how would we know that the offering of the Lamb of God on the cross satisfied God's wrath? That our sins are fully and finally paid for. How do we know that justice has, we've been singing in the past weeks about justice being satisfied. How would we know that justice has been satisfied? Look again at verse three. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering. 
He presented himself alive to them after he suffered and died. That is to say, it's been a success. The suffering and atoning work of Jesus Christ is an amazing success. And the ascension itself, paired with the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus pronounces the success of redemption and salvation for your sins, my sins. It calls us to worship the exalted Christ. He is seated at the right hand, ever living to make intercession for us, praying for us, pleading. Like, the reason you can't lose your salvation once you become a believer and you trust in Jesus is because the advocate is pleading your case forever, and that never stops. If you and I had to plead our cases, we would lose our salvation. But thankfully, the creed says, and the Bible teaches, he ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. The ascension is part of this larger gospel story, so it's not like it's just this glory moment. It's a glory moment that seeks, it's a glory moment that's designed to pronounce the success of the gospel. And we want to see it that way this morning. So that's the ascension in the larger gospel story in the first book, O Theophilus. And o Theophilus is probably, he's probably an influential leader, uh, probably not a, simply a, symbol, a symbolic figure, you know, O lover of God. Theophilus means one who loves God. So he's probably more than a symbolic. He's probably a real influential leader, and Luke is writing this book to him to um, for him to, to, to share the, the testimony of the Acts of the Apostles. So that's the, that's the ascension in the larger gospel context. Number two, ascension is the beginning of the church. This is really cool. So look at verse six again. The disciples are asking a really important question. Are you going, are you going to do something right now? Like they're seeing this risen Christ and have been interacting with him for 40 days. He's kind of moving in and out of this time and space dimension, and, and he's, he's you know, ministering and confirming who he is and presenting himself, presenting the gospel to be successful. So they, they ask a really obvious good question, verse six. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Like, where does it go next? You conquered the grave. Where does this go next? Are we going to set up a geopolitical kingdom right here? You know, they'd already been thinking about this. Some of them had been vying for seats on the right hand and the left hand. Remember, they got their mom to ask for, hey, can we sit on the right or the left when you come into your kingdom? We'd like those seats. Remember that? So, so they've been thinking about this. Will you install the rain right now? Like, are we going to take over the world right now? This is going to be amazing. And Jesus clears things up in verse 7. Look at that. And he says, no, we're not going to do it like that. Verse 7 says, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed in his own authority. But you will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What's he saying? He's saying we're going to rule the world, but differently. It's going to happen through the church. 
There's going to be collections of people who confess faith and submit to my lordship gathering in Ephesus and in Rome and in Achaia and in Galatia and in Crete and all over the Mediterranean. It's going to keep spreading to the ends of the earth. These little colonies of the kingdom, these things called the church are going to be, are going to be um, gathered together. I'm going to build my church. That's how the world's going to be. That's how the world's going to experience my rule. He's answering the question, how are they going to experience my rule and reign? It's going to be through the church. It's not, going to look like I'm, it's not going to look like I'm taking over the world, but I am. And I'm going to take over the world one family at a time. And the gospel is going to begin to be handed off from parents to children and from children to neighbors. And, and there's going to be like this, this, this amazing explosion over time. And people are going to be yielding to Jesus Christ. And it's going to be the way I rule the world between now and the time that I come again. And then I will physically, in dominion, on the earth, a new heaven and a new earth, I'll rule it all, but not yet. So Jesus says, I'm coming again, but between now and then, it's going to be your testimony of the gospel that brings the rule of God and the reign of God to the earth. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, native-born or immigrant, American or Iraqi, British or Chinese, Venezuelan or Bosnian, Christ has redeemed a people for himself. That's what the church is. The church is this amazing club. Like, I don't want you to be too down on clubs. Clubs are cool. Like, but clubs so but the church is a unique amazing club there's all sorts of clubs out there um and some clubs are better than others and some clubs are more helpful than others some clubs are clubs where people help each other and honor each other and care about each other and and other but but other clubs not so much the church really is kind of like a club in fact the church is an amazing club the church is the best club if you're look if you're not in a club right now like if you're not in a club and you're feeling like you should belong to something. This happens to people all the time, by the way. Why do you think clubs exist? Like the reason clubs exist is because people want to be part of something. If you're not in a club and you're thinking about belonging somewhere, you should consider the most amazing club of all. The church is, is a club. It's a sacred, amazing, unique club where people have turned away from themselves and their sin and their disobedience and their self-centeredness and have trusted in Christ who is the Messiah, who's the leader of the club. And it's, it's a family. It's not just a club. It, it's a family of people who have been made new, redeemed, changed, and who are committed to one another. Like if you're in a good club, you're committed to it. Jesus is saying, I'm going to restore the world. I'm going to restore the kingdom, but here's how. I'm going to create a people for myself, a people who don't deserve to be a people, who were once not a people, but who've experienced my mercy. And I'm going to teach them how to live in a way they've never lived before. The ascension is the beginning of the church. 
So it's a, it's a boundary, but it's also an incredibly important transition in the gospel. Because it's at this moment when the gospel, the gospel, uh, the significance of the glory of Christ who's ascending, the Spirit gets sent. He goes, but the Spirit is sent to establish. These. What, what on earth could hold this group of people, this club, this gathering of people together? It's the Spirit of God who He sends in fulfillment of His promise. And it's only the Spirit of God who could make you and remake you. And so, a lot more to say about that, but the, but the ascension is the beginning of the church. It's a significant boundary and a transition. Here's my favorite part, and I need to save some time for it. Number three, I think the ascension is the archetypal sign of God's transforming glory. It's the quintessential, the archetypal sign of God's transforming glory. So when you pair the ascension with the resurrection, it becomes the ultimate sign of God's transforming glory. It's not just another sign of God's glory in the Bible. It's not just another sign as in the parting of the Red Sea or the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night or God's people joyously singing psalms of ascent as they go up to Jerusalem. It's not just another one of those signs. All of those signs were pointing to this sign. This is the moment of going up. This is the defining moment of God's transforming power and glory from which all other moments of God's glory find their meaning. This is the moment that makes it possible for Jesus to come again and judge the living and the dead and to inaugurate the new heavens and the new earth. This is the moment. Like In the gospel event, this is the moment. Let me show it to you, verse 9. And when, verse 9, chapter 1, and when he said these things, so Jesus finished talking, and while they were watching, now look, they did not see the resurrection. No one was there. Nobody saw the moment when the dead, lifeless body of the Son of God came alive. Nobody saw that. But they saw this, authenticating and deepening the meaning of the resurrection. So they're watching, and when he said these things, they were watching, and he was lifted up, and a cloud, mark that, a cloud took him out of their sight. This in Scripture is a sign of God's glory. It's the glory cloud. It wasn't, just, uh, it wasn't just like somebody turned on a fog machine in the background to kind of do a little magic trick. You, you know what I'm saying? Like so, so we, Jesus and the Father are trying to trick people, so, so they put a little fog bank on it. Hey, what's going on right now? This is weird. Jesus is gone. Poof. Resurrection is true. That's not what happened. What happened is the glory of God in a unique manifestation of the glory of God. The transfiguration was pointing toward it. His ultimate return when he comes in blinding light is grounded in this. Like this moment, this glory moment, they're standing there, they're watching. He finishes talking, they're watching him, and there's this, he's, he's glorified again, and he's taken up, and he disappears out of their sight. It's a glory moment. It's a massively significant glory moment in the, life, in the gospel story. They 
I wonder, I did wonder with my sanctified imagination, what would it be like if you were Jesus kind of going up and out and into wherever he's going, you know, crossing through time and space? What about looking back down on the crowd? Like, what were people's faces like, you know? (laughs) What is happening? They were jaw-dropped. Whoa. He's real. His death wasn't for nothing his resurrection is real and he said he was going back to the father like that's happening right now that was had to be an amazing look it radically transformed their lives it radically transformed the what they would do with the rest of their lives What happened on the 40th day, this very day, was the glorious confirmation of the power of the gospel, that God has the ability, and no one else does, that God has the ability to transform death to life, humiliation to exaltation. That was happening right in front of them. Now, I want to show you something that I hope will help you to work glory into your own God's glory into your own heart and soul and displace your own longing for self-glory. So here's what I want want you to take with you. I'm trying to encourage you to take this with you. Something about the glory cloud of the ascension of Jesus that will overshadow you and you'll take it with you. When you think of Jesus going up, when you think of Jesus going up in this glory cloud, think of him as pulling your life with him to a higher plane. Let it be richly symbolic. It is richly symbolic. So let it be. Because of Jesus' resurrection and ascension, right? the gospel really can take us to a place where we live on a higher plane. So think about it like this. The ascended Christ doesn't pull us down into a debased, degraded, dishonorable way of life. That wouldn't make any sense. He takes us up to live on a higher plane. If then you have been raised, some of you are studying Colossians in your Bible study class. If then you've been raised with Christ, since then you've been raised with Christ, seek therefore the things that are above. He's seated at the right hand of God. Think about those things, pursue those things, put off, put off, put off, and put on these things. That's Colossians 3. The, The point of the ascension is that we are enabled to live going this way, not this way. Like, if we live by ourselves, we just keep going further down. You and I can genuinely be transformed, as Paul says, from one degree of glory to another. We can experience gospel change that takes us into the image of the Son, and we're going up from one degree of glory to another. Only because Jesus takes us there, right? From mocking, from mocking to praise. We used to mock people. We used to mock people. We used to be sarcastic and stinging and caustic, and we used to mock people. Now we, now we sing praise. What? Where's that come from? From ashes to beauty, from shame to honor, from humiliation to exaltation. You remember, some of you will remember this old hymn. 
You remember this? Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's table land. Do you remember that one? Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's table land. A higher plane than I have found. Like a higher place to live than I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. That hymn writer was trying to say, let the ascension take you, let Jesus take you with him. Let the ascended Christ change the character of your life. Change you and, and me, change us to live on a higher plane. Vicki and I just finished watching Sanditon, a um, PBS series from Masterpiece Theater. Uh, it's, based on, it, it's based on a Jane Austen novel that was unfinished, and so the producers kind of finished the storyline. But it reminded me that well, one of the things we love about Jane Austen is that she was masterful in showing the plight of the human condition, in contrasting between two different characters, the debased and the person living more noble and on a higher plane. Like she, you see this in all of her, in, in all of her work. She, she has characters who, who are living uh, like beasts and like brutes and like, like, you know, degraded lives, and then other characters who are far more noble. And then the other thing she does is she shows that in each character, even the noble characters, there's this internal conflict between those two things, between living a debased, degraded life, between living this direction or living on a higher plane. And she does this over and over in her works, whether it's a contrast between Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy or whether it's the contrast between Charlotte, uh, I can't remember Charlotte's last name, and Sidney Parker. And so... So there's this ongoing tension. What was Jane Austen trying to accomplish? Through her literary work, she was trying to draw us up, not down. Higher, not lower. And that's what the ascension does. So the ascension's not just a doctrinal statement in the creed. The ascension is an invitation. Listen to this. The ascension of Jesus, the glorious ascension of Jesus as he leaves the earth is an invitation for you to follow him into a higher way of life. Like, isn't there something on the inside of you that says, I should be more noble. I should appreciate beauty more than I do. Why am I so pulled toward the baser instincts? Again, the apostles did not see the actual resurrection of Jesus. They did not observe the moment when Jesus was resurrected. With, they didn't see it with their own eyes. But right now, from this moment on, the resurrected Christ who ascended in glory in front of them would be remembered in that exact way. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10 for a moment and look at what it says. They stood there gazing in amazement. They were captivated. Such captivation that it would change their lives. And then the angelic pronouncement, why are you standing here gazing? Well, I mean, I kind of want to say on their behalf, because it was crazy amazing, you know? That's why we're standing here gazing. I mean, when's the last time the angels asked you a question? Who knows how to answer them? Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven 
will come in the same way. He will one day return. Let me give you the sermon in one sentence. The life of every disciple of Jesus is one long trajectory toward ascension. The life of every disciple of Jesus is one long trajectory in following him toward ascension. That's where we're going. And we should be going up as we go there. You're not just waiting for heaven. Like we're going up now. We need to pursue the ascended Christ now. It is, um, it is basketball season. And I do love me some basketball and love our Upward program. To see in our Upward program um, one, of our, one of our guys uh, on our team, I, he's never going to be a great, amazing basketball player. He's just not. His, the way he, just, the way he um, plays, he's, he's probably not ever going to be a great basketball player. But to see him love the game, get passes, and make baskets this season was amazing. I mean, it, it, was, it was moving to me at the end of the season to see one of our guys on our team make progress like that. And so basketball is fun. Basketball is a great, fun thing. I just want you to know, before I say what I'm about to say, that I love March Madness. I love basketball. I think it's awesome. In fact, we're probably going to shoot this afternoon for a few minutes in the gym. But this March Madness uh, stuff got me thinking this week why are people willing to give such big money to college basketball programs I want you to think about this with me why are people willing to give such big money to college basketball programs storied programs like like UCLA uh, Kansas Kentucky UNC Duke and others who are trying to break into that elite status, right? Like UVA and, and VT. I mean, everybody wants a successful basketball program. So why are boosters or alums so willing to pump hundreds of thousands of dollars into college basketball? Is it because they truly believe in educating a well-rounded student? Because our students need to learn to read well, write well, and think well. Do they really believe that? Well, some of them might believe that at some level, or at least are easing their conscience a little bit with that. I don't know. But I do have a, a hunch that it's probably more about glory. It's probably more about glory than it is really educating students. The money that's being pumped by the hundreds of thousands into, co into collegiate basketball programs is a glory investment. People want a share. They want to put the money in and get a share in the glory investment. Give, I'll put this in, and we don't just want one. We don't want just one Final Four. We don't just want one championship. We want to own. We want to have more rings than anybody else has. We want to be the greatest basketball program ever in the history of the world. G O A T, greatest of all time. Period. Done. Nobody. No questions asked. Like, we're going to pump money. We're going to pump thousands and millions of dollars to the point that coaches have unconscionable salaries. 
get a coach making millions of dollars and thousands of students graduating with $120,000 worth of student debt. Now look, this is messed up. I don't have the solution to all that. But I will say this. I think these are glory moments. I think, okay, so you and I, most of us here this morning, couldn't stroke a $100,000 check this week for the basketball program. But every person in this room is equally guilty of stealing God's glory. All the time. Hundreds of thousands of times. People want, we want, you know, people want to purchase shares of glory so they invest in the basketball program and, and like, it's, like, it's like getting a Getting that share, you make that transaction, you get that share and you put it in your pocket. I wanna tell you something about getting your own glory. When you, when you put that share of glory in your pocket, it's gonna burn a hole in you and in your pocket. It's gonna, it's gonna corrupt you, it's gonna ruin you. Anytime you seek to get glory and put it, it, put it in your pocket seize. Like anytime you seek to get glory, anytime you seek to get glory and keep it for yourself and you're shoving it in your pockets, in your pocket seas, right, to, to borrow Tolkien's language, anytime you, you do that, it's gonna ruin you. That's why we were singing a few minutes ago, his praise echoes in our hearts. Like we were made for glory, we were made for glory, but we weren't made to have, get glory and shove it in our pockets and keep it. We were made to echo that glory and praise like you were made to glory in, glory in someone else. Now, it is not my, uh, my goal this morning is not to ruin your image of collegiate basketball. I love collegiate basketball. But God help us to redeem it somehow. And the other thing I want to make sure you leave with is you and I are glory thieves just like what I just described. And throughout your conversations this week and your life, it, there are going to be times in your home, at work, at school, when you're going to be tempted to grab the glory and, and instead of letting that glory that you're sensing be turned back toward God, you're going to be tempted to keep it for yourself. When that happens, try to think back to the ascension of Jesus Christ. And remind yourself that you're a disciple of Jesus. And disciples are always living this way in an ascending trajectory that gives glory and praise to the one who ascended. Disciples are not the ones who live down like this, pocketing glory for themselves all the way. So the ascension should remind us that we only have really one thing to boast in. The cross of Jesus. Paul says, I, I boast in the cross of Christ. There's no other glory that will transform your life. Like, there's no other glory that's gonna make you happier. There's no other glory that's gonna satisfy you. There's no other glory that's gonna be meaningful and life-changing than the glory of Jesus. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, thank you for helping us to see 
Thank you for showing us. Thank you ahead of time that this week you will show us ways we're tempted to steal your glory. God, please help us not to pocket that glory, but rather to either turn away from self-glory through repentance and faith or to echo praise back to the one who should alone be made famous. Lord, on behalf of this body, this club of Jesus, I want to repent of stealing your glory in a hundred thousand different ways in life and conversation. God, give us eyes to see it, mostly in ourselves. Lord, help us not to see it so quickly in others. Protect us from that. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, descended to the dead, and rose again on the third day ascended into heaven and is seated in amazing gospel success. We believe that this morning. Lord, help us to sing about that. We pray in Christ's name.